Welcome back to another episode of Conversations on the Creek, the Duck Creek podcast where we interview thought leaders about how the latest insure tech is transforming the PNC insurance industry. Whether you work in underwriting, sales and marketing, claims, or an insurer's IT department, in each episode, we uncover the insights you need to reimagine the future of insurance. I'm Rob Savitsky, and I am so pumped to bring you today's episode, live from ITC Vegas 23, The Innovators Part 1. This was a lot of fun to record. I actually recorded 10 different guests uh, during the conference. Uh, This was just between sessions, on the trade show floor, in the hallways, And we actually decided to break this into two episodes, a part one and a part two, which will come later in the month. You can listen to this episode as is. However, because each of these episodes was recorded independently, they each stand on their own. So feel free to jump ahead if there's a certain topic or guest you would like to listen to. I've actually put the show notes in the show notes. I put the timestamps of where each of these little micro podcast episodes start. For now, though, I'll give you a quick preview of what you can expect first episode was with Rose Hall of XXL. She shares how they're providing more preventative risk management services to their commercial lines clients. Then I chat with Ryan Lockwood of Toyota. This episode is all about telematics, sharing connected data with carriers, and their embedded offering in Toyota insurance. Next, I chat with Stephanie Benke of Hi Marley. She shares her perspective on how and when to deploy AI when texting with claimants. Then I go to Tony Cañas of Insurance Nerds and Goodman Recruiting. Tony provides his take on what carriers need to attract and retain millennials and Gen Z workers. Also talks about DE&I initiatives quite a bit. And then finally, we'll wrap it up with Kurt Jackson of ISI. He discusses how advances in satellite imagery are enabling unprecedented changes to insurers' decision-making abilities during CAT events. Really was a lot of fun making this episode. There's a little bit of background noise throughout, depending on where and when we were recording this. But I hope you enjoy it. And so without further ado, here are the episodes. And we're back, Rob Savitsky, and I am here with Rose Hall from AXA XL. She leads innovation at AXA XL. Uh, I know I'm not getting your title correctly, but we're here at ITC, just came off the panel. Rose, welcome to Conversations on the Creek Live. Thanks. It's cool to be here. Awesome to have you. So, uh, yeah, just as a quick intro, could you maybe give us a brief overview of uh, you, what you're doing in your role and what, what innovation looks like at AXA XL today? Absolutely. I'm the head of innovation for the Americas, and my remit is largely client-facing. So when we say innovation in my group, we talk about um, business model innovation and client approach innovation, how to do something different for the client and the customer that mitigates their risk, that helps them innovate, helps them become more sustainable businesses. Less on the IT operations, you know, um, infrastructure type of innovation, and more on the business model innovation. Sure. So we just got off this panel on commercial insurance. And one of the points you were talking about was that it's been a shift in just, you know, selling the policies to your clients, but really focusing more on the services piece. And I was wondering if you could maybe elaborate a bit more on what you what you mean by that and how why that's important for insurers in 2023. I'd love to. We created what we call our Acta Excel ecosystem, which is a very broad word, but what it means for us is a group of technology partnerships that we've developed. We've screened over 750 technologies to partner with 33 that we really think are valuable, viable, risk-reducing, innovative, and true partnership-oriented relationships. 
And these are the texts that we help our customers find. So we know their business, we know their risks, we know their claims. We are partners with them. We sit with them multiple times a year. And we want to come to them at the, to the table next time and not just say, here's your renewal um, and here are your claims and loss analysis. We want to say, also, here we, here's how we can help you mitigate your risk. Not just the risk we insure, but everything their total cost of risk. And technologies and innovating, you know, innovating risk management strategies are the way to do that beyond the policy. Got it. No, that's that's really awesome. So going beyond insurance and bringing in this ecosystem of, of kind of, you know, preventative data, analytics, and so forth. Um, I guess, you know, you've, you've obviously, I think you, st- you mentioned you started earlier on as a risk engineer um, earlier in your career. And I, I'm curious, um, what would you say, what's, what's changed? What's different since then? And what, you know, what is being delivered in these services uh, that are helping, you know, helping clients, you know, really, uh, you know, not be surprised when they get the renewal or, or, or be shocked by, you know, the kind of endorsement they might be offered. Yeah, I would say that the biggest thing that's changed over the last 10, 15 years-ish is that risk engineers were out there sitting with one customer, looking at their risk profile and giving them advice on that particular day for that particular risk. And then they go and they do that periodically. And it was a one-on-one um, it was a one-on-one approach. It was a reactive approach almost. Yeah, we're coming out here to help you figure out how to manage your risk on this one job at this one time. What's changed is the collaboration of taking all of that information and looking at a cross-section of their peers and feeding back more information to the customer. And you notice I said information, not data, right? Because there, yeah. there's, it's both. It's the expertise of the consultant, the risk engineer, and the data that we now know how to aggregate and create insights from, and feeding that all back to the customer and telling them, here's where we think you're doing really well compared to your peers, here's where we think you could use a little help, and here's some solutions to help you do that. So that at renewal, they know why the rate was flat, they know why the rate went up, they know why the rate went down, and there's no surprises. And in that way, we can really maintain a true partnership and hopefully retain that customer and their risk for years to come. Nice. Yeah. I mean, I think it's like you you want to you want to be as sticky as possible, and if you can have more touch points throughout the, the life cycle of the policy and be that trusted advisor, you position yourself as a carrier to uh, to you know have that long term relationship with with the business and, and provide more value. So you know you have to give to get. We just provide value. Uh, we see this cross section that they can't ever see, and giving that back to them really speaks volumes about how we're willing to partner with our clients. Nice. That's awesome. Uh, maybe one final question before I let you go. And thank you again for being so generous with your time. I just re- literally just snagged you after you, you came off this panel. Um, but uh, you alluded a little bit to about, uh, you know, more cat events happening in recent years. And you were talking about data and, and so forth and not just using historical data. How, uh, how does the industry find a path forward uh, to, to really, you know, think about uh, extreme events and, and, you know, working with your clients more collaboratively to to help them oh gosh very loaded question i know to end the interview that's like asking like when's the next hurricane going to be you know um we don't know nobody knows but we do know that trusting historical weather data is no longer going to be a reliable way to price future events right so we have to be flexible about it and we have to be um not to use an overused word but we have to be innovative about it we have to think about what parts of what we've done before can help us with this next phase and what parts do we need to change, adapt our thinking, adapt our models to be able to be resilient through the next thing. Cause we're not going to be able to predict it. All we can do is hope to be resilient. Got it. Yeah. No. And I think cat modeling uh, continues to evolve and there's lots of, uh, you know, interesting new data sources coming into them to simulate forward looking events and show the realm of what, 
you know, hasn't happened historically, but, but could certainly happen in the future. Well, Rose, it has been awesome joining you. Thank you for joining. Uh, it's been a pleasure meeting you in these last couple minutes. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Hey, everyone, and it's Rob Savitsky, live conversations on the Creek ITC Vegas edition. And I'm here with Ryan Lockwood, Senior Manager of Data Platforms at Toyota. Uh, Ryan, uh, what is going on? Welcome to IDC. Actually, let me retract the question. How is your ITC? You just came off a panel discussion. Uh, what did you guys talk about there? Uh, thank you. Well, the implications for connected car data and uh, just generally speaking, how insurers should think about the possibilities of using the data from connected cars. Um, within Toyota, our strategy is to work with the top 10 carriers directly. Uh, we have the ability to uh, pre-process that data, and, and, and it essentially it sits resident waiting for a carrier to call us so that we can supply that data in a couple seconds. But it's a really exciting time right now. Uh, there's a whole lot of untapped potential that we see in the market because right now, in our experience, most of the carriers, the data that they're using is pretty basic. It's generally the same stuff they've been using from their mobile apps. So where's somebody located? How fast are they driving? How many events are they generating within a certain number of miles? In other words, how many times are they slamming on the gas or slamming on the brakes within a given distance? And that's about it. Maybe a few other little things, time of day, stuff like that. But if you think about all the sensors that are on the vehicle, there you can do a heck of a lot more than that. Because we've got the ability to tell whether somebody's weaving in their lane, whether their, uh, their pre-collision system, the, 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 the system that prevents them from rear-ending somebody, whether that system's engaging, uh, how close they're following behind somebody, uh, in addition to a, a whole number of other sensors as well. So there's a lot of potential there. No, that's awesome. And uh, so I, I used to have a 2008 Toyota RAV4. Loved the car, had it out of school, um, just unfortunately died on me, and, and I've, I've had, to, uh, had, to, had to send it away. But uh, in any event, can you talk to me about how vehicles have evolved in the last 15 years, and you know, what are you capturing now today that can actually help the insurance industry more than the early telematics products that we saw back in, say, around 2008, 2009? Good question. Well, I can't go back 15 years because I've only been at Toyota since 2018, uh, but I'll, I'll share this with you. When I started in 2018, there were a grand total of 2,000 connected vehicles uh, that, had, that actually agreed to allow their data to be, to be uh, shared within Toyota. Now we've got about 7.3 million in 2023, and ev just about every single vehicle that comes off the manufacturing line is connected, streaming data. Uh, when, you first, when you first get into a vehicle, there's a sticker on the, on the head unit that informs you that the vehicle's streaming data. The salesperson will uh, talk about the, the value of the Toyota app. You know, every OEM has their own app. They'll talk about the value of the Toyota app when you install that app and go through the installation uh, process of the app. There are several different connected services, and one of them is acknowledging that you're aware that you're driving a vehicle that is, that is emitting connected data. Now, you asked a, a question about how is this whole landscape evolving. So earlier we talked about you know, just basic telematics attributes. Where's somebody located? How fast are they driving? How often are they slamming on the gas or slamming on the brake? Right. And then that evolved to, are they driving at, time of the, at day or at night? Uh, and then it evolved to, uh, how much time are they spending idle within a given trip? So presumably that's, are you driving you know, on a country road or are you driving in rush hour and having to start and stop all the time? Now we look at all the other sensors that are on the vehicle. So even things like windshield wipers. If the windshield wipers are on, that's an indication that you're driving in inclement weather. 
Uh, the following distance, there, most vehicles have radar cruise control, and there is an attribute in there that measures the distance that you're following behind the vehicle in front of you, which is a, a telltale sign of risky behavior. There's uh, one of the safety systems called Lane Keep Assist, which a lot of people turn off, but that's the system where if you weave into another lane without using your turn signal, it'll beep at you. Um, and it, there's two things there. The number of times where that system is triggered might be interesting. It might also be interesting to know whether or not people are turning that system off. That's probably an indicator of a little bit riskier behavior as well. Right. You know, those advanced vehicle assistance features, they, they definitely take some time to get used to if you're, if you're driving one of those newer vehicles. But, yeah, the value is, uh, is immense and hopefully will, will impact results. Uh, question for you around something you said. Uh, this might be a little bit slightly unrelated to insurance, but you're talking about the point about People speeding in Texas and going 80 or 85 miles an hour um, when the speed limit is 70. I can't remember the name of the freeway. George Bush Freeway uh, in, 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 in Texas. And, um, but you pointed out that there's some other things that you should be keeping in mind when evaluating, you know, is this a good driver? Is this a bad driver? But my question is about the speed limits. Are our are, are speed limits too fast or too slow relative to what the actual risk is and what situationally cars and, and drivers are able to accomplish these days? Well, if you ask probably any insurer, they're going to tell you that the, the, the driving behavior they noticed during COVID when nobody was on the road, people started driving faster. When people came back and started driving again, their behavior didn't change. And all of a sudden we saw a spike in the number of incidents. So are people driving too fast and too aggressive? I mean, you, <laughs> probably yes. The, the thing that is interesting from our perspective and what we see budding interest from the insurance carriers is this notion of contextually relevant data. That's what I was talking about. So, if you, you know, we talked about George Bush. George Bush speed limit is 70, but it's a brand new freeway, great big freeway. It's just buffed out. It's super smooth. And everybody does 85 miles an hour on that freeway. If you're doing 85 and the speed of traffic is 85, is that speeding? Well, according to the algorithms of yesteryear, it absolutely would be. Most of them are rule-based. If you spend a certain number of seconds over a, a threshold like 85 miles an hour, that is a, that's a negative impact on your overall score. Now, one of the, if you think about the notion of contextually relevant speed, two things. Uh, doing 55 miles an hour doesn't look like speeding using an old algorithm. Doing 55 into 25 is obviously speeding. So there's one thing that is just measuring speed relative to posted speed limit, which is actually more difficult than you would think, because you've got to take an entire map of the U.S., determine the speed limits for every single segment of road, and then look at where somebody drove and took, take their actual speed relative to that speed limit. It's, for us, it's pretty process intensive. That's one thing. That's, a, that's kind of a baby step. What's more interesting is looking at the speed somebody's driving, looking at the time of day they're driving, because obviously driving at night is more is riskier behavior than driving at day, looking at the weather that was, uh, that was occurring at the time they're driving. Driving in snow, driving in you know, hail, raining sideways is obviously risky behavior. And then where things really start to get interesting is when you look at speed relative to flow of traffic which is something that we're working on as well. So I, I mentioned George Bush. You know, if you're doing uh, 80 and the flow of traffic is 80, not speeding. If you're doing 80 and the flow of traffic is 60, but you're weaving in and out of cars, obviously that's risky behavior. Right, yeah. It's, it's more than just breaking the simple rule is what insurers should be paying attention to and, and taking all these other factors into play. Um, I, I'm going to ask you one more question. You've been very generous with your time, and I, I'm thankful that I was just able to snag you after this panel. But I think I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about Toyota insurance, uh, especially with embedded and embedded insurance being a, a huge trending topic in the industry for 
you know, maybe arguably it's been around for a while, but in the last year or two, uh, a lot of discussions around it. Can you tell us about what what is the vision of Toyota Insurance and, and maybe how it interacts with some of the other brands that uh, that you're working with, or the other brands that Toyota uh, you know is part of? Well, I can only speak at the kind of top level of the the overall vision of Toyota Insurance, but the because that is a separate entity, and my you know, my my role is working with Connected Analytics Services, which is the data aggregator, a data aggregator and consumer reporting agency. However, having said that. Uh, Toyota Insurance is an MGA. The, the, the vision is to provide a premium insurance product to Toyota owners. So you think long term, absolutely you want to be able to provide an option for a Toyota owner to, to get an insurance quote from Toyota Insurance at point of sale. Uh, likewise, you've got an option to buy Toyotas online. There should be an option to get a quote for insurance from Toyota Insurance when you make that purchase online. And of course, it's also an overall ecosystem play. You know, uh, one of, part of the value prop, and we can show this statistically. You know, today, if you get into an accident, your motivation is to go to the, the cheapest auto parts place you can. You know, Joe's Automotive. You get the, the car repaired with the cheapest parts you can find. And statistically, we can show that. Toyota owners who have their cars repaired with non-OEM parts are less likely to buy another Toyota because the car never drives the same as it did when it was new. So if we have a premium product, we can encourage use of the Toyota Certified Collision Centers. We can encourage use of OEM products, uh, OEM parts to repair the car, to back to factory specs. It's, it, it speaks to the overall Toyota ecosystem. Got it. That, that totally makes sense. And, uh, yeah, I can see why you would want to get into that and, and make, make Toyota more sticky overall across all touch points for the, for the customer. Uh, Ryan, it's been awesome having you on the program. And I, I know we didn't even talk about it, but you're doing lots of awesome work in data sharing with, uh, with, with other carriers, whether you know, your customers come to you and want Toyota insurance or they want to work with their existing carrier. And so I think that's uh, an, an interesting space to continue to watch. Uh, anything else you'd like to add before we, we wrap up this mini episode? I know it's an exciting time right now. I think we're just scratching the surface of what can be done with this data. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on. Thank you. It's Rob Savitsky back again at Conversations on the Creek Live here at ITC, ITC Vegas. And we are we're wrapping up in the afternoon. This might be one of my last interviews of the day. But I am incredibly excited to have Stephanie Benke from Hi Marley here to join me. Stephanie, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. It's, it's awesome to have you on. And just catching you after doing your partner presentation at the Duck Creek booth, obviously we're very excited to have you in the ecosystem. And uh, yeah, we want to just ask you a couple questions today around customer experience and what that means today. So, you know, Hi Marley, obviously a company all about creating lovable experiences you have uh, access to, uh, you know, seeing a lot of the behind-the-scenes work of a very large cross-section of the market. And so uh, I'm curious, what, what do you feel that insurers are doing today to deliver lovable experiences to their, to their customers? Awesome. So, yeah, it's, it's a great time, actually, to be in the industry because I feel like we're making significant strides in this area um, and finally, and for the first time, making strides in this area without taking away from the employee experience either, which is really important. So Hi Marley, we always talk about making lovable experiences, so thank you for using our, our tagline there. Oh, yeah. And that really looks like um, 
to a customer, it looks like staying informed, staying in touch, you know, even using artificial intelligence to make sure that you're telling me what I need to know for tomorrow, right? And so in, I'd say in the olden days, we used to give you maybe a checklist of here are the 27 things that you're going to experience over the next 90 days after a claim occurs. And that's really not timely and it's not really working for customers anymore, right? Lovable is about you need this information today or here I'm reminding you about something you need to know for tomorrow. And so it's that timely notification and it's building trust. And you can do that in a myriad of ways, but again, sort of this constant contact idea is what builds trust. And we all know that the more trust that you have, the more loyalty they will have to your brand right, as a carrier, and the more loyalty they have to you as an organization, less likely to get an attorney, less likely to file suit. Um, so really today, it benefits both the em employee and the customer, and at the end of the day, it really benefits the carriers. Gotcha. Yeah. So expanding on that that point around lovable, let's uh, let's just take a, a common auto accident, and uh, you know, you mentioned a couple things around like AI and introducing that, and obviously text messaging is is all all your wheelhouse. And so I'm curious as to, you know, how does uh, how does text messaging and how does AI fit into into that journey during a claim? What are you what are you seeing out there? So we're seeing a lot of uh, sentiment analysis is the first thing. So as I'm communicating with my with a customer, are they starting to get frustrated? Are they feeling like they maybe need to get an attorney? And so AI can always alert the adjuster, an underwriter, anyone in that process, letting them know that a customer is starting to get frustrated. And we can jump in front of that as quickly as possible, right? Um, it also looks like you know AI can also jump in and then I understand what is the next thing that you need to do to finalize your claim. So if we just take a traditional accident, maybe we'll talk about something that has a total loss because that's a pain point in our industry. Right. In the event of a total loss, you got to get your stuff out of your car and you may not even know where your car is right now, right? So proactive notifications that let you know, you know what, Rob, your car can't safely be repaired. So here's what you can expect next. And here's directions to the tow yard where your vehicle is. And a reminder, don't forget to bring your screwdriver to take your driver, you know, your license plates off. That, like Those kinds of things can keep you informed and stay ahead of the game to prevent that frustration. You know, When we look at our data and we do data analysis on those millions of conversations that we have, we find the number one driver of questions and frustration is I didn't know what to expect next, right? Which is pretty common in the insurance industry. Yep. No, that's, uh, that, that's, that sounds awesome. So it, I get the sense that it's kind of like the AI can be used sort of in the beginning in a proactive sense to, you know, you've got these prompts of, that are very preventative. But then what you're saying is that as, as things maybe heat up or get a little testy, that uh, carriers are able to discern when, when things are, are really at the point where I, I, are these like questions or, or things that how does uh, what, what would be an example of something that the AI would flag in a, in a conversation with a bot? Yeah, so the, the AI is looking for things specifically, again, like that negative sentiment. So um, don't tell me I need to get an attorney or this is terrible. It's the third time that the body shop has rescheduled the delivery date for me. Some things like that, right, that are really giving a shadow of your customer, again, is getting frustrated and where to go next. And and I will say this, you know, as an industry, I think we recognize that we the human element in our industry is so critical. And so everything that we do as an industry is really, I think, to augment that human experience. It's not really meant to replace that human experience. So it's calling out for an adjuster or for an underwriter 
a likely next step and just bringing it to their attention that, hey, this conversation or this file probably needs you to take a quick look at it. Sure. No, totally makes sense. And uh, maybe I'll, I'll, the last question I'll ask you here as we wrap up this micro podcast. So I know you were talking a little bit earlier around getting more folks involved in the conversation. So insurers, obviously, that's that's the first person you're probably going to call, uh, assuming you're, you're you're safe and not not you know need medical attention right away or anything. But how can text messaging facilitate more of like a one to many, uh, you know, interaction with the different parties that need to be involved? Yeah, so you're right. It, it takes a village to resolve a claim, right? So you might have somebody at a rental car facility. You might have somebody at a body shop. You might have somebody, again, you might have um, a co-part. And, and so those folks facilitating, when can they pick up a vehicle that needs to be towed? All of those folks can be brought together in one conversation. So as a policyholder, I have one text thread on my phone. I don't perceive it as talking to 17 people. I perceive it as I send to this text message a question and the right appropriate person is going to answer and respond to me. So super easy for the policyholder or the claimant, but it also brings together, again, one single trusted communication. Love it. Very lovable. I mean, it's all about, you're, you're laughing at me, but uh, yeah, I, I feel like I always, you know, everyone always has a million text threads up and it's never easy to keep track of it. And I could only imagine if I had five different parties I was in touch with, that would that would be very challenging. So that's that's awesome that we're now bringing bringing everything together one place well uh stephanie it has been awesome having you on the on the show thank you for joining us thank you for having me all right day three itc vegas i'm here with tony canas who does very many things in the insurtech space i know him as the host of profiles and risk podcast um but uh i was able to snag him he is uh usually doing magic in the uh lobbies of uh, uh, of the events, but uh, he's got a lot of different talents. Tony, why don't you tell everyone first, what do you do in insurance? Awesome. Tony Kanye is professional insurance nerd. Tony Kanye is comma CPCU, I should say, since since, uh, since this is not on video. Uh, so what, 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 what do I do? I'm a former carrier underwriter who fell in love with insurance, fell in love with how do we engage and retain the next generation of insurance professionals, and... Uh, started this crazy thing called Insurance Nerds, which was a blog, it is a blog, to help young insurance professionals grow their career. And from there, we started the Profiles in Risk podcast, Profiles in Risk, which is now the largest podcast in the insure tech space. Almost 500 episodes. We also have a version in Spanish, that's about episode eight. Uh, I also run chatwithtony.com, which is free career advice for an insurance professional. The uh, Insurance Nerd Slack channel, which is insurance.com, anybody can join. Great online community for insurance and insure tech people. And uh, I'm a magician, which is a kind of a new thing from, from, the, last, uh, from the last six months. Uh, if you go to an insurance or insurance conference, you see a guy in a top hat and a red jacket, very likely me. And uh, ultimately, I run a little recruiting firm that is specialized in insurance and insure tech. Oh, and I wrote the book on how to engage millennials in insurance. Do a lot of speaking on that topic. Currently writing the book on how to engage Gen Z within insurance and on how to grow your insurance career. Those are two separate books that I'm working on right now. Awesome. Well, I, I, I picked you out because I want to talk about talent. And in particular, so obviously, everyone in insurance is talking about the older generations are retiring. There's uh, a lot of uh, institutional knowledge that is going away. And carriers are wondering, how, how can we get you know more millennials, more Gen Z, to especially Gen Z, to come and have a career in the insurance industry? And so 
What would you say you're seeing the successful insurers do to actually attract a talent and, and make them want to work at your you know, 100-year-old carrier? I'll tell you what we should be doing. I don't know if, I, I don't know if, if enough carriers are doing it to have good examples. We, we've gotten better. We've definitely gotten better. Okay. Number one, it's important to understand that the kids coming, at, coming in from college today are not millennials anymore. Right? I'm an elder millennial, 40 years old. The oldest millennial, SMI, the oldest millennial is 41 to 42, depending on the demographer. The youngest millennial is about 30. Okay, uh, I haven't slept much, so my math's really bad. But basically, all the kids born after 1995 are Gen Zers, and those are the ones that have been coming out of college the last few years. So the boomers are retiring. We've been talking about this for a long time. It's finally happening in mass. COVID didn't help with that. Boomers are retiring. The next generation, the Xers, are a much smaller generation. Millennials are a very large generation. They're not. We're not kids anymore. Right, we're talking from 40-year-olds to like 30-some-year-olds. Uh, not kids anymore. But we do think very differently than prior generations. We were raised by boomers that, that work, 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 all that matters. Millennials are not that way. Millennials are, are a work-life balance generation. This is even before COVID. They are a mission-driven generation. And that's the biggest piece. That is the biggest piece. Out of my presentation, out of my book, the one thing, if you can take one thing away, is the new kid that you just hired, or this has a few, a couple of years of, of experience, thinks this is a job. They did not grow up wanting to work in insurance, right? Even if they came in with a risk management major, they didn't grow up wanting to work in insurance. They, go, they went to a school that had a risk management major to get a business degree, and then Gamma Yota Sigma had free pizza, and they recruited them into the major, and they won the lottery, right? So basically, at the beginning, they're thinking of this as a job, not a career. It is up to you as their manager, as, as their leader, to get them to fall in love with insurance, to help them grow with insurance, to help them realize that insurance has a great mission, that regardless how little their job is right now in the call center or whatever, to help them realize that, that they are a part of this great mission. Every insurance company, what we do is we help people get back on their feet. That is a really attractive mission to millennials. Okay? So you help, help them fall in love with that, help them understand how to grow with insurance, and you have a much better chance of keeping them. Now, Gen Z, okay? Gen Z is a generation, the millennials, millennials are a generation that grew up during a time of affluence, and we grew up a little slower because of that. Gen Z is the exact opposite. Gen Z grew up during time of constant chaos, recession, recession, recession. You know, the post 9-11 world is what, they were born after 9-11, right? And, and they grew up uh, with, with the last couple of recessions, with COVID, with all this crazy stuff. Many of them finished high school or college remote because of, of COVID and the, and the first couple of post-COVID years, okay? They are a generation seeking stability, okay? So to, to Gen Sears, you can sell that. You can sell, hey, we are a 120-year-old company, right? But you also have to get your technology right, which we've been investing on, but we're not done, right? You guys have done great work at the, at the creek on, the, on that side. Thank you, uh, appreciate it. <laughs> absolutely, the credit workers do. Uh, we have to get our technology right, and we have to get our culture right, okay? Gen Z is the first generation that is 50% non-white so 50% of Gen Z is racially diverse okay we have to get that right we have to get it so that regardless of which race you are or you consider yourself uh, your chances of, of growing in the company are equal uh, to a white male we have to get it so that when they look upstairs they see people in the leadership that look like them that's the part where we have really failed we have to get diversity Millennials Expect diversity, Gen Z will demand it. Both generations will vote with their feet and they'll leave you, especially in a remote first world. And finally, with, 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 with Gen Sears, uh, 20, the latest survey by Gallup, 
20% of Gen Sears identify as LGBT. Okay, we, we used to think it was about 10%. 20%, quite simply, you have to get LGBT right at your company, including trans rights, which is the hardest part right now. That's awesome. Yeah, Tony, I totally agree with you, 100%. And yeah, when it comes to DE&I, what, what, uh, what does getting it right look like? Obviously, you know, I think um, you know, carriers are starting to take some steps to, uh, to, uh, to, to do that, you know, to implement more formal programs in DE&I, and, and hopefully over time there will be more leaders that are at the top. I, I guess, uh, what do you see as some initial steps that insurers who haven't necessarily embraced DE&I fully might take to start setting themselves on the path to, to you know, doing right and doing, doing what, what they should be doing? So at the larger carriers, at the larger carriers, they have taken the first steps. They have employee resource groups. They, they have DEI committees, etc. The problem is too many of them think or act like they think of DEI as PR, Okay. The, and, and, and you're shaking your head, right? Like, like you're yeah, Just as like another checkbox. They're not like, actually living into the values and understanding what does it mean and putting themselves in the shoes of, you know, folks who didn't come up from the same background or, or you know, identify as they do. Exactly, exactly. I, I used to do this once on video when you, when you, were, when you do them uh, <laughs> locally. Uh, okay. Uh, DEI, the leaders of the industry, DEI is not... PR. DEI is a business imperative. It is not only the right thing to do, okay? And at the very least, if you survey your millennials and Gen Sears, a huge percentage of them, probably 70, 80 or more, even in very conservative areas of the country, even if you happen to be Farm Bureau of Montana, by the way, Farm Bureau companies are great companies. I started one of the Farm Bureau companies. Even if you happen to be a little regional carrier in a very, very, very conservative area of the country, I guarantee that your younger employees think that DEI is very important and that they expect you to have real diversity and inclusion, okay? How, so, so we have to move beyond, okay? There's an amazing organization. Well, there's several amazing DEI organizations, right? There is NIA, support NIA, su, su, support uh, all the women's and insurance organizations. Uh, there's a really awesome organization I happen to be on the board of called Insure Equality. Insure. Oh, nice. That's awesome. I think they, they were at InsureTech Boston over, over the summer. Ju- yeah. uh, yes, it just started two months ago. Okay. Uh, excuse me. The, the insurance quality just started two years ago. Okay, I joined the board this January to, to make a lot of noise for them. Insurance quality is focused not just on diversity education, which is fantastic. Education is very important. They're focused on accountability. And it might take us time, but if you are do, if, if you are doing DI in a performative way, DI Kabuki Theater, and you're not making the, the real changes that really lead, the hard changes that really lead, so to to the African-American trans kid, right, to come up with it, like a minority, a minority, a minority, who started today in your call center, if that kid 15 years from now turns out statistically did, did not have the same chance of making it to the top as your kid, right, yeah. as, as, the, as the white, tall, male, tra- very traditional-looking cisgender straight kid, we will eventually call you out on that. And not only that, your employees are seeing it. They're seeing it. What, what, what Insure Equality really is doing is gathering the data, g- gathering the survey data, okay, gathering the, the, the survey data so that eventually we can open that up to people so that when they're changing companies, and in a remote first world, and make no mistake, this industry is remote first going forward. This is a genie we can't put back in the bottle. No matter how much your, re- your commercial real estate portfolio is hurting, 
you cannot put this genie back in the bottle. You're not going to win that fight. Okay. Um, so basically, in a remote first world, once you have some insurance experience, you can work for any carrier. You don't, you're not limited to the carrier nearby. You're not limited to the carrier you're willing to relocate to. We are going to, and especially agency, they're going to go work for your competitors that get this right. Sure. No, that's uh, well said, Tony, and some awesome organizations to check out. We'll definitely put a link to them in the show notes from, uh, from today's medley. Uh, Tony, it's been a pleasure catching up with you. Thank you for, for jumping in. Anything else you'd like to add before we, uh, we wrap it up here today? Thank you so much for your time. Insurance continues to be an incredible career to, to, to work in, but the, the new kids coming in, whether they came right, right out of college or whether they've been here for a few years, especially if they've been stuck in a crappy job, because there's a lot of crappy. This, this is an industry with amazing long-term job, careers, and so often, especially at small, uh, large carriers, crappy entry-level jobs. Help them fall in love with what we do in insurance. Help them see a future for themselves, and and that's how that's what we keep people. Thank awesome. you. Cool. Thanks, Tony. Thank you. I've got Kurt Jackson. Really excited. We just put out a press release a couple of days ago, welcoming Ice Eye to the Duck Creek Partner Ecosystem. And now we got Kurt for a couple minutes. So, Kurt, how is your ITC going? It's going really great. It's wonderful to be here. There's a lot, you know, if you're not at ITC, you're missing out. It's a tremendous opportunity to network with a lot of innovative carriers as well as connect with your partner ecosystem to show the combined value of coming together with multiple solutions to, to deliver value to the insurance community. Awesome. Well, uh, obviously, you are in the satellite imagery space. Could you maybe tell us a little bit about, like, What's going on in, in satellite imagery? What kind of data are coming at, is coming out of satellites these days, and how are, how are carriers utilizing it? Um, yeah, I think I, I, I like the, the last part of your question I'll answer first, because, yeah, we use satellites, but I'm not in a satellite business. I'm in helping insurance companies uh, achieve value, and what we're able to do is provide insights within 24 hours of a cat event hitting, whether it's a flood or fire event, and this has never been able to be done before because when the eye of the storm is over Florida or wherever it may be, we can tell you the extent and depth of a flood. When the f- smoke is so thick over a wildfire you can't see the hand in front of your face, we can tell you which buildings have been destroyed or not. We do that using satellites because we can be over any place on the planet every three hours and see through that using radar. So I think the cool thing about what we're doing is using radar data to see to the surface and no atmospheric conditions impede that. It's a highly complementary approach to what we've typically seen with optical satellite and aerial imagery. That's awesome. Yeah, could you maybe fill in a little bit more? How has the, the technology itself evolved and in, uh, in, you know, how it's different than other, other, air, other forms of aerial imagery? Yeah, so there's, it's, one of the things that's exciting, that's why one of the reasons I joined uh, ISI is, is prior to ISI, synthetic aperture radar satellites were large satellites that cost hundreds of millions of dollars to build. So they were limited in nature. Had a couple here, a couple there. Uh, My founder and his co-founder created an innovation that was able to shrink down that technology, reducing the cost and payload to get into space, which allows us to have the largest constellation of these satellites, which now make it feasible to address the NatCat use case for insurance companies. So that's a huge transformation innovation. We have over 25 of these satellites and it continues to grow. Once again, if you think about the planet, 50% of the time it's night. Even when it's day, 
there's cloud cover over most places. So optical uh, imagery, whether from a satellite or a plane, can be a challenge. We are not impeded by any of that. We can look day, night, through any atmospheric condition, and that's highly innovative to provide the data and time insurers need it. So you're seeing through the clouds. We are seeing through the clouds. I like to say we're like Superman. We are, we, we are X-ray vision. We're using radar to bounce uh, uh, energy off the planet, receiving it back so we can see through the clouds. That's awesome. So you have a cat event, you have a hurricane, and a carrier is getting this data. How are they acting on it with their, with their claims teams? Uh, what are they doing that is you know, maybe better than they, they were able to do before? Yeah, really good question. So a couple key pieces. And, I, and I've used this analogy recently. It's like, in the past, you may be able to model where the storm went and try to figure out where your claims are going to come from, how many claims you're going to have. And there's a couple use cases. One is the execs, or oh, I want to know what's this going to cost us? Uh, how do we reserve for this? And now with data in near real time, you're able to give them a much more accurate representation of what the potential impact would be. From a claims operational perspective, you're able to figure out where do I need to have my staging areas? Which claims are going to be the most severe? Which ones are going to be less? How many adjusters do I need in the field? Um, you could start uh, procuring temporary housing, making sure you secure the best third-party adjusters. All your um, processes that you go about in the, at the uh, result of an event, you start quicker and you start doing it with insights versus waiting for first notice of losses to come in. One of the exciting things is, in our partnership with uh, Duck Creek, is we make that data readily available in uh, Duck Creek Claims Platform. So when that first notice of loss comes in, your claims adjuster, your triage department will oh, this home was sitting in 10 feet of water. This one was sitting in two feet. Radical difference as to the type of adjuster you're gonna send and the type of mitigation efforts you're gonna employ based on how much water was there or not. So it makes it, totally reduces your loss, adjusted expense costs, and overall claims costs while creating a much better customer experience. Gotcha, yeah, no, it sounds like a much more efficient deployment of resources. So both financially in the reserving piece, but also in the sending your people out to the right neighborhoods, to the right individual homes, to understand and assess where the claims are and just being more proactive in the customer experience and not waiting for the call to, uh, to come in. 100%. If we think about um, your consumer today and the digital natives, the digital experience, um, they're not used to saying, I've got to initiate. We've, we've talked about Internet of Things where we have sensors on water heaters and things of that nature where we can proactively prevent claims or communicate back before the loss happens. Um, it's kind of the reverse of thinking the insured has to tell you when they, they have incurred a claim when there's plenty of data out there so that you can proact and address that with the client and create a, a radically different customer experience for them than waiting for them to actually have to uh, let you know about a loss. Love that. Well, Kurt, it has been awesome catching up with you on Conversations on the Creek. Anything else you'd like to add before we wrap it up here? I'd uh, just like to say um, it's been a pleasure uh, to be working with my friends on the Creek, and we continue to, you know, we've got our first integration, and we continue to develop that, and it's wonderful to work with you guys to provide tremendous value to the insurance uh, ecosystem. And I would say one of the things I really enjoy working at ISI is the humanitarian impact of it. When somebody's been devastated like that, being able there to help people restore their lives as soon as possible is, is just, um, it creates another dimension to this job. And I really appreciate that opportunity. Thank you for interviewing me. 
Absolutely. Great having you on. Thank you, Kurt. And yeah, we got to remember what we're here for. We're protecting people, properties, and society. Thank you again to all of my guests, Rose, Ryan, Stephanie, Tony, Kurt. So much fun making this episode with you. And thank you all for listening today. As I mentioned earlier, be sure to look out for part two of Live from ITC Vegas dropping later this month. Until then, if you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to check out all of our other episodes and follow Conversations on the Creek on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. You can also visit us by going to duckcreek.com slash podcasts. I'm Rob Savitsky, and I'll see you in the next episode.